Prayer. Lord, we do thank you for uh, Elder Robert's willingness to bring the message today, and we pray that you will fill him with your spirit, that you'll give him clarity and accuracy, that uh, we would be fed with what we need for the day, and that you will bless his efforts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our corporate profession of faith today is found on page 846 in the hymnal. Today we'll read together the Nicene Creed. The creeds are wonderful. The creeds are summaries of what we believe, and they were hammered out, uh, truly, they were hammered out in controversy and debate about, especially about the deity of Christ was at the heart of many of the debates early um, in the early centuries of the church after Christ's death and resurrection. And here we have, again, a, a beautiful rendering of what we as Christians believe is at the heart of Scripture. So page 846, we will read this as Christians across the ages have read it together and alone. And um, that gives me great comfort to know that Christ is working and and that his church will not fail. So together, the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Thank you for that prayer, Elder George. I need it. I confess to you all that I am not comfortable speaking up here. I have never been comfortable speaking up here. And I'm reminded of the first time I spoke up here. It was about 10 years ago. And after it was over, I remarked to a Christian brother who was here who is now in glory. 
I said, I'm not comfortable up there. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, good. <laughs> You're not supposed to be comfortable up there. You have a weight of responsibility up there. Don't get comfortable. Leave it to a United States Marine to speak straight truth and not mince words. And I want to tell you, in view of that, if I misspeak this morning, and if I say anything contrary to Scripture, I want you to call me on it. I want you to ask me about it afterwards. Because I am prone to misspeaking. And I may make a mistake. And I'm accountable to you for what I say. And I take the responsibility seriously. But if I say anything that makes you think less of me, then you should go right ahead and think less of me. I'm going to be speaking on the subject of God's holiness this morning and the, the reason why. There's a backstory to it. I think it was two years ago, about two years ago. A Christian brother handed me a book by J.C. Ryle called Holiness. And he said, have you read this? Nope. He said, you need to read it. Now, if somebody says, this is a good book, that's one thing. But if somebody hands you a book and says, you need to read this book, I'm going to read it. So I read that book. And it was a gut punch. It was a, an eye-opener and showed me in more detail and more vividly than any other book that I've read my own deficiencies in the area of holiness, my many defects in the area of holiness, how short I fall of the mark of perfection, God's holiness. And that book and, and the, the impact that it had on me, I called it a gut punch. It was a gut punch, and two years later, I think, it, I think it was two years ago, you gave me that book. I'm still bent over from that gut, gut punch. I still haven't recovered from it. I don't think I'm supposed to recover from it, this awareness of my own deficiencies. This is part of Christian growth and maturity and sanctification. We're going to look at men in the in the scriptures who are godly men but when they get a sense of God's holiness they're just blown away by it they realize how far from the mark they are and the passage that I will be speaking on is found in Isaiah chapter 6 if you want to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6 and verses 1 through 7 In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. 
With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord God, I humbly ask you to help me exhort your people in this time of worship. Please still my heart and mind. Let my words bring you the honor and glory that you alone are worthy of. I ask this in the name of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to speak to you about God's holiness. How mortal human beings react when confronted with His holiness. And even we see in this passage, these seraphim, the blazing ones, that's what their name means. Why do you think they're blazing? (laughs) They're holy angels. They're blazing with holiness. And even they are covering their faces in God's presence. And it strikes me that this is beyond reverence. It is reverence, but it's beyond reverence. It is awe. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary definition of awe is an emotion variously combining dread, veneration, and wonder that is inspired by authority or by the sacred or sublime. The secondary definition is terror. Look at Isaiah's response to God's holiness. Keep in mind that Isaiah was not an average guy. He was a prophet of God. He was a man who, when he proclaimed, thus saith the Lord, he was speaking words that came directly from the Lord. And as an aside, if you hear somebody say that, I have a word from the Lord, be careful with that. You do have a word from the Lord, all of you. You have God's word. You do have a word from the Lord. But when you hear somebody say, I have a special word from the Lord, and you don't have a reference to back that up, um, that's a red flag. But when Isaiah said, I have a word from the Lord, the Lord spoke to him and said, you tell them, I said. Isaiah is not an average guy. And even he says, woe is me. For I am undone, 
Some translations have that ruined. The Hebrew word, I looked it up, I can't pronounce it. It can be translated destroyed, depending on the context. Isaiah thought he was doomed. He felt his guilt in the presence of a three times holy God. And he knew with certainty that he was unworthy to see the king, the Lord of hosts. I think all of you are probably familiar with the praise chorus. Our God is an awesome God. I've known it since I was a child. And I think many of you, maybe all of you, have sang these words before. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Now that is proper use of the word awesome. But in our culture today, the word awesome, not to say it's overused, that's putting it lightly. When we overuse words, they lose their meaning, they become trite. I'm going to give you an example. Our modern society that we live in today, thanks in no small part to Facebook, has succeeded in trivializing the word friend. What does friend mean now? Friend means somebody whose name you know, and you know what they had for supper last night because you saw a picture of it. Green bean casserole. And they gave me the recipe. They're my friend. Friend can just be somebody whose name you know and maybe not even their last name today. And in like manner, the word awesome has been used so frequently in our culture. And I grew up in the 1980s, and it was a 1980s buzzword. Awesome. It was used so frequently that it essentially became meaningless. And when words like that become meaningless, when they lose the punch that the strict dictionary definition has, we see a word like awesome has just morphed into a word synonymous with good or nice or cool. And that makes me think how I used to use the word when I was a kid. Everybody did it. That doesn't make it right. Schools canceled for a snow day. Awesome. Dennis told me I didn't have any cavities. Awesome. Big Macs are on sale for a dollar. Awesome. There is nothing awesome about a Big Mac. Even for a dollar, nothing awesome there. It beats going hungry, but it's not awesome. Nothing awe-inspiring going on there. And we threw that word around so casually. God's power, God's majesty, God's holiness, that's awesome. That is awe-inspiring. That will put you on your knees. That will instill in you a sense of terror because you will realize 
how unworthy you are, how far short of the mark you come. And I've purged the word awesome from my everyday vocabulary. Habits are hard to break. Verbal habits are like that. I, I would just default to the word awesome if you told me some good news. Tomorrow's high is supposed to be in the 70s. Awesome. I'm like, oh, that's not awesome. That's just nice. I had to consciously get rid of that word. It has its place. There aren't many things in our everyday lives that inspire genuine awe, but God's holiness does. There's an R.C. Sproul sermon on YouTube I recommend. It is entitled, Improper Worship is Dangerous. In that sermon, Sproul points out that if our risen Savior physically walked into any Christian church during worship service, no one would come up to him and say, Hey, Jesus, great to see you, buddy. Nobody would do that. As Sproul pointed out, every single person would be on their faces in worship, in awe. Another Sproul sermon that I recommend to you that a lot of the ideas that I talk about here are borrowed from Sproul. We stand on the shoulders of giants. Trembling before the holiness of God. Wow. That sermon will knock you over. I recommend it. Recently I was doing a Google search looking for psalms of praise. And one of the results was a devotional entitled, Three High Fives to God. What do you think of that? The title was in reference to three verses in Psalm 86. And I am pretty sure that the author meant no disrespect, but it says something about your view of God when you talk about giving him a high five. And it's a low view. Who do you give high fives to? Not God. And seeing that, called to mind Psalm 50, 21. God says, you thought I was just like you. It is a grievous error to think that God is like us. Lannis Morissette had a song back in the, I think, the early 90s. Not just heretical, blasphemous. What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. It's ridiculous. There's a warning in the second part of Psalm 50, 21. The first part is, you thought I was like you. The second part is God saying, I will rebuke you and present the case before your eyes. A high view of self always results in a low view of God. In our men's study on Thursday mornings, we've been going through Steve Lawson's book, Foundations of Grace. 
And in the preface, Lawson points out that as we as believers think, we worship. And as we worship, we live. And as we live, we serve. And as we serve, we evangelize. Calvin said regarding the reaction of God's redeemed people when confronted with God's holiness, and I quote, Hence that dread and amazement which as Scripture uniformly relates, holy men were struck and overwhelmed whenever they beheld the presence of God. When we see those who previously stood firm and secure so quaking with terror that the fear of death takes hold on them, the inference to be drawn is that men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. Moses was in awe of God's holiness upon Mount Sinai. As the author of Hebrews records in Hebrews 12, 21, and so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Moses is God's man. And he is exceedingly afraid and trembling. Job, whose scripture calls a righteous man, righteous not for his own holy good deeds, Righteous because he believed in a redeemer. But what did he say in Rome, uh, Job chapter 42, verses 5 and 6? I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is Job. This is a righteous man. I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Job was just a sinner like us. Job saw his own insignificance, his own unworthiness in view of God's holiness, just like we should. The prophet Habakkuk said, O Lord, I have heard your speech and I was afraid Habakkuk is a prophet. He is God's man speaking God's truth to God's people. And he was afraid. Simon Peter, after seeing Christ perform a miracle, it was the miracle of the fishes where he said, cast your nets down. And, and there were so many fishes, the, the nets broke. After seeing Christ perform that miracle, Simon Peter fell down at Jesus' knees and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Luke chapter 5, verse 8, that's where that's found. Christ's beloved disciple, John, on the Isle of Patmos, when he saw his risen and glorified Savior, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, he said, I fell at his feet like a dead man. That's Revelation 1.17. That's John the beloved disciple, a man who knew Christ very well. John MacArthur wrote a paragraph that is a model of succinctness 
which is something that I need to work on, regarding God's transcendence. The Word of God presents God as the controller and disposer of all creatures, the Most High, the ruler of heaven and earth, and the one against whom none can stand. He is the Almighty who works all things after the counsel of His will and the heavenly potter who shapes men according to His own good pleasure. In short, He is the decider and determiner of every man's destiny and the controller of every detail in each individual's life, which is really just another way of saying he is God. MacArthur gave 22 scripture references to back that paragraph up. And I have reflected a whole sermon could easily be crafted from that paragraph and the 22 scripture references that back it up. And this holy God, who is the creator and sustainer of all things, he saves sinners. Hallelujah. Praise God that he saves sinners. I want to point out to you that the miracle of grace, which is unmerited favor, I learned that when I was a little kid. I didn't even know what unmerited really meant. It wasn't in my vocabulary. But I was taught that grace is unmerited favor. And then I was just taught as you would teach a six-year-old child, what it means is you don't deserve it. You're getting something you don't deserve. And upon further reflection, it's not just that we don't deserve grace. It's the opposite of what we do deserve. I've often reflected that if there, is, if there was such a thing as purgatory, I work with a devout Catholic, we have talks about purgatory. If there were a purgatory, I don't believe there is, but if there were, it would be grace and mercy to send sinners to purgatory because it's not as bad as hell. But we get heaven. It's the opposite of what we deserve. We deserve hell, we get heaven. It's beyond mercy. Oh, it's mercy, but it's beyond mercy. It's unmerited favor. It's getting the opposite of what we deserve. And this doctrine is found in the imputation of Christ's righteousness. There's another word that I learned as a small child, not in, not, definitely not in a small child's vocabulary, imputation. I was just taught as a small child that it is like being charged to somebody's account that they pay the price. As a little kid, I could grasp that concept. It is an accounting term. It does mean to apply to one's account. Our sin was imputed, charged to Christ's account on Calvary. But it's more than that. His righteousness, His holiness, His law-keeping was imputed to all who believe the righteousness of Christ himself, the holiness of the Son of God, 
applied to our accounts. And that makes me think of a pastor I had when I was a kid, and he used to say that, the, that Satan was the accuser of the brethren, which he is. There's a scripture reference for it. I got off script, so I, don't, I didn't look the scripture reference up. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And Brother White used to say, I can see him in my mind's eye saying this, that Satan rails against us and points at us and accuses us and calls us guilty when we stumble, when we sin. But God sees us covered with Christ's righteousness and says, paid for. Paid in full. Your sins have been paid for and you've been cloaked, covered in Christ's righteousness. That should do something for you. I'm talking about emotionally. That should do something for you. If you shrug your shoulders and say, eh, that's swell. Something's wrong. Christ's righteousness was imputed to all who believe. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Meditate on that. That will bake your noodle. How can we become the righteousness of God? The miracle of grace. Imputation. We have Christ's righteousness. I wish, I wish that we could all keep that in the forefront of our minds because that is an easy thing to forget. It is an easy thing to forget that you're a child of the King. And if you forget, if I forget that I'm a child of the King, I won't behave like a child of the king now, will I? So easy to forget. We've been made holy, not by our works of righteousness, but by what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness. What he meant was this righteousness is not intrinsic to us. It is extrinsic. That is a real word, extrinsic. There's a word that's not in the common vernacular. It is from outside. R.C. Sproul described it better than I ever could. He called it a righteousness that's apart from me. It's not mine inherently. It belongs to Christ. And what Christ does is when I put my trust in Him, He imputes or counts to me His righteousness. And on the basis of that imputed righteousness, God declares me just right now. So that if I die right now, I go to heaven right now because I have all the righteousness I will ever need to get there. Namely, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's good news. That's the gospel. The gospel is good news. 
Elder George said, nothing I can do this morning in, in Sunday school. He said, nothing I can do can blot out my sins. And that, when he said that, made me think of my dad's conversion in 1974. And my dad had every, every, uh, what's the word? Intention. He had every intention of cleaning up his act and becoming a better man, a better husband, a better father, a better neighbor, a better specimen of a human being when he was a young man. I don't remember this. I was four years old the summer of 1974. And my dad was a daily heavy drinker and pot smoker. It's what he did when he wasn't working, by his own admission. He stayed straight when he was at work. When he got off work, he drank and smoked pot. So he spent his time at home either drunk, high, or drunk and high. And that's how he lived. That was his lifestyle. And when my first pastor, Abe Simon, came and visited him and sat down with him and gave him the gospel, and my dad said it was the first time that he had ever really listened to the gospel. He had probably heard it before. He was a Christmas and Easter Baptist, which meant... He went to the Baptist church sometimes on Christmas and sometimes on Easter. He went a few times when he was a kid growing up. He may have heard the gospel. He didn't pay any attention to it. By his own admission, he didn't pay any attention to it. But he heard Abe Simon give him the gospel. And Dad responded with, I have every intention of straightening up and flying right. And I do a lot of drinking, and I do a lot of pot smoking right now, but I'm going to clean my act up. I really am. And he said he, he really meant that. He thought someday, I'm not going to live like this for the rest of my life, stumbling around like a drunk and a pothead. I'm going to straighten up and fly right eventually. I mean, not now. Later. Someday. Maybe. And his plan was, when that day happens, I'll meet God halfway. I'll clean my act up. God will do his part, whatever that is. And, you know, we'll meet in the middle and I'll have a relationship or whatever with God. And then when I die, I'll go to heaven or whatever happens. And he's just like, that'll just happen someday. And Brother Simon told him, anything you do to clean your act up is completely worthless in God's eyes. As far as meriting heaven. As far as redeeming your soul, it's worthless. In fact, those things are just filthy rags to God. Just filthy rags. It's filth. And Dad told me, I saw the light. And he said, at that point, he realized... I am undone. I need Christ. I need a Savior. And at that point, he didn't hesitate because the Spirit of the Lord opened his blind eyes, took out his heart of stone, and gave him a heart of flesh. 
and put the breath in his lungs to cry out, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That was a work of God. That wasn't Abe Simon's eloquent delivery of the gospel. That was God. Working a work in my dad's life. And for the rest of, or the rest of his life, he was a changed man. I don't know anything about this drunken pothead that he told me he was. It's hard for me to even imagine that because it was so different from the man that I saw, the only man that I knew from the time I was four years old until last year when he passed, was a man chasing after God. It's Christ's righteousness that covers us. It's not our own good works. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That is Christ's righteousness. The gospel is good news. Christ offered himself as a sacrifice for us. And Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 is one of my favorite passages. And it starts with two of my favorite words in the Bible that change everything. But God. Everything just changed. But God. Who is rich in mercy? Because of his great love, great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Made us alive, regenerated us, brought us to life. Spiritually dead people giving them a heart transplant, giving them a, a new heart, a living heart, taking out the dead heart. This is miraculous. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9.15, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Words fail to describe the gift of salvation that a holy God bestows upon unholy, undeserving sinners. It is an amazing thing that our prophet, priest, and king would himself become the sacrifice for our sins. And in due time, as Paul wrote in Romans 5, 6, Christ died for the ungodly. He was the priest who became the sacrifice. Untie that Gordian knot in your mind. The priest became the sacrifice. This is indescribable. This is too much to put into words. Words are inadequate. Does this fact that Christ died for the ungodly, does it bring you joy? Are you amazed by it? You see where I'm going with it. Is grace amazing to you? It can become commonplace 
and it can become, yeah, it's, you know, it's okay. Swell, I guess. It's better than the alternative. It should affect us. It should affect our feelings, our hearts, our minds, our emotions, our will. It should. It should infuse our entire being, this concept of grace. It should make our lives anthems of praise to God. I'm going to relate something an acquaintance said to me several years ago. You know how sometimes people say things and they just kind of stick in your mind? And what this guy said to me, it's been over a decade ago. It struck me in such a way that I found myself from time to time I think about it or something will make me recall these words. He told me he went to the UU, the Unitarian Universalist Church. I'd never heard it called the UU before and I thought it was Y-O-U slash Y-O-U. Like, it's about me, me, and you, you. That's what I thought it was. And I was like, the you, you? And I'm like, what kind of novel concept is this? The you, you. And he said, no, it's the, the Unitarian Universalist. I was like, oh, those wackadoos. Yeah, I've heard of those people. Not Christians. Deists. I guess they're the spiritual, the spiritual uh, children of the deists. He said about going to the UU. He said he loved going to church on Sunday because he always walked out of there feeling better about himself. I don't think I'll ever forget that. And that's, that conversation was 10 or 12 years ago. What do you think of that? Love going to church on Sunday because I always walk out of there feeling better about myself. Why do you go to church? Why do I go to church? It's a legitimate question. Why are we here? Are we here to feel better about ourselves? And that reminds me of a Christian brother who last year in our men's study, he mentioned how he prayed for God to give him an honest heart. And I heard that. And that put a stamp on me. And I pray for that all the time now. I want God to give me an honest heart. To be able to look at myself and examine my motivations and my actions and my thoughts in light of the truth. What's really motivating me? Being honest with ourselves. <sighs> How many things do I do? And I'm talking about good deeds here. Great things. Like, you're going to give me a thumbs up when you hear I did it. Works of mercy. Acts of kindness. How many times have I done things like that? Not to glorify God but in an attempt to just feel better about myself, to raise my self-esteem. I'm helping somebody out, not because God commanded me to, not because it would bring glory and honor to God, but because I want to feel better about me. And after I get done with that good thing, I'm like, yeah. 
I've made mention of the fact that I used to read through the Bible with the little check-it boxes, and if you do that, good for you. But this is what it became for me. I read through the Bible. You do it in a year. You check your little box. Y'all have all seen it, the little boxes. And I did that three or four times before it dawned on me. I was just reading through the Bible to feel better about myself, and I wasn't really gleaning anything from it because I was speed reading, because I wanted to get it over with. See, it was a job that I needed to do, and I needed to do it efficiently and quickly. And if you read through the Bible like, done. What did you get out of it? I, don't, I did it. I checked my box. My eyes scanned over those words. I did it three or four times before I realized... I'm I'm talking about I went through the whole Bible three or four times before I realized I'm just doing this to to give myself an attaboy. I read my chapter today. I'm a great Christian. What a sham. And I'm a slow learner. I read through the whole Bible three or four times before it occurred to me that I was wasting my time because I wasn't even getting anything out of it. And the, the opposite effect, instead of it making me holier, it was making me holier than thou. It was making me just feel good about myself, puffing me up so I could be self-righteous. Did you read your, did you read your chapter today? Huh? I did. I read my chapter every day. Look at me. Look at me. I'm super Christian. Watch that on YouTube, by the way. Super Christian. Watch it on YouTube. It's an old cheesy 80s movie. The guy thinks that he is God's gift. And he's wearing a little shirt. And it's the Ikthus fish. And it's got an S in the middle. And he thinks he's super Christian. He's puffed up with pride. <laughs> and he finds out the truth. It's a Christian movie. I recommend it to you, even though it was probably made on a budget of It has a good message to it. Used to watch it in youth group back in the 80s. I remember my youth pastor always saying, this is a cheesy movie, but pay attention to what the message of it is. And even though it's laughable, it has a good moral to the story. On the subject of feelings... Elder George touched on it. Our emotions are not a product of the fall. It's Elder George this morning. Our Lord and Savior experienced the full range of human emotions. Yeah. Our emotions, our feelings, we have them. No use denying it. It's a fact. God created us with them. Y'all are probably familiar with the stereotype, Presbyterians are the frozen chosen that we don't have any feelings, that we're very repressed, that we're very quiet, that we're very blasé. Now, we have feelings. Presbyterians have feelings. They shouldn't control us, but they're always there. I teach high school, so I'm exposed to teenage slang, and it's different now 
than it was 40 years ago when I was a teenager in the 80s. And there's a phrase now, I hear it all the time, feeling some type of way. It can mean, it can be positive or negative. It depends on the context. When you feel strongly about something. But you can't quite articulate exactly how you feel. In modern slang, you feel some type of way. So, every one of us, we entered this sanctuary feeling some type of way. And every one of us is going to exit this sanctuary feeling some type of way. I walked in here feeling apprehension. I feel it every time I stand here and talk because I do feel that weight of responsibility. I'm afraid of messing up, just being transparent with you. I'm afraid of stepping over my words. I'm afraid of stuttering, stammering, saying something wrong, saying something sinful. I'm afraid of communicating ineffectively, being ambiguous, and looking like a complete idiot. I'm afraid of wasting your time. I have a duty to exhort you. I'm trying. I'm really trying. It is my sincere desire to encourage all of you, to strengthen you, and even to help you feel better, but not about yourselves. I hope it's never said, Tony made me feel better about myself. No. I want you to feel better about God's mercy and his goodness and his grace and his great love whereby he loved us. You should feel good about that. You should. We as Christians, we're influenced by the culture around us. You can't say we're not. There's no denying it. You can't live in the pig pen without getting some mud on you. I've heard that old country expression. Our culture exalts self. If we exalt ourselves, who are we not exalting? If you go to church to hear self-esteem enhancement and prosperity gospel, which is living your best life now, which is I'm going to name it and claim it. I'm going to have great health and great health benefits and plenty of money in my pocket and life's going to be good and it's going to be that way for all the people I know and love. That sounds great. I mean, all of that sounds great to me. But that's not this. That's not church. The, the modern Christian church has dropped the ball on the gospel. Instead of repent and believe, it becomes your, your best life now. It's been observed. If you're living your best life now, what... Is going to happen after it's over? That's a good question. What, so what's the afterlife going to be? Because if it, it's as good, yeah. Lost people are living their best life now. This is as good as it's going to get. They might as well eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow you die. And the future's not looking so good. <sighs> Man, your best life now. 
The chief end of man is not self-glorification. It's contrary to what our culture tells us. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And we should feel happy and fulfilled to have the privilege to gather together here at this church without fear of persecution. We should feel joy to, to be able to worship, to praise, to glorify our awesome God. It should affect our feelings. But I confess to you that my feelings often hinder my worship. Can't be the only one here. The psalmist said, why are you in despair, my soul? And why are you restless within me? Wait for God, for I will again praise him for the help of his presence, my God. Psalm 42, 5. What should you do when your heart isn't in it? A member of this church, 10, 12 years ago, said to me, I know my church attendance has been spotty lately. But I just haven't been feeling it. I went, hmm, okay. And they went on to say, it's probably a sin to go to church when you're not feeling it. You know, when your heart's not in it. And I went, hmm. And they asked me, what do you do when your heart's not in it? I'm not going to lie and say, oh, no, my heart's always in it. I always jump up on Sunday morning like, oh, let's go to church right now. I can't wait. No, not always. Not most of the time. Sometimes it's just, I feel like I'm slogging it out. I feel like I'm the same way I feel on the way to work Monday morning, but I'm on my way to church Sunday morning. And I know something's wrong with me when that happens. So when that church member asked me, what do I do? I said, it happens, and I have to repent on the way to church, and I have to say, God, help me. You know my heart. You know I'm not really feeling it this morning. You know I'm just not in the mood for worship. You know I'm tired or I'm stressed out or any of a number of reasons why I'm just not feeling it right now. That's sin. That is sin. And I have to repent of it. God, forgive me. The psalmist said, why? Why do you feel that way, my soul? You should ask yourself, when you get up on Sunday morning and you're not too jazzed about coming to church, you should ask yourself why you feel that way. What's wrong with me? And ask for God to give you an honest heart. You might not like what you find out there, because you know your heart's not in the right place and it calls for repentance and what is the Christian life but one of daily repentance Martin Luther said that in the first thesis I want to leave you with two passages that have often been a source of encouragement to me when life gets me down and life gets me down the first one Romans chapter 8 you can turn with me if you want Verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things. 
we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If that doesn't do something for your heart and your emotions, then pray like that man in the Bible who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Because if you believe this, it will have an effect on you. If you believe those words, they'll get you through some hard and dark and trying times. As far as hard and dark and trying times, the world's full of them. Right now, there's so much strife in the world, confusion, uncertainty. I don't know what's going to happen with Israel and Gaza. I have no idea. I don't know what's going to happen with Russia and Ukraine. I don't know. People I work with say, this could be World War III. It could be, but I lived through the Cold War. And then I realize my generation is the last generation to know what the Cold War even was. Because the millennials who came after me, the Cold War was over by the time they have any memories. The wall had come down, Berlin Wall. The Cold War was over. It was officially done with. And when you think the world could <laughs> go up in nuclear holocaust at any time, and you grow up with that, as I did, I mean, you kind of shrug your shoulders and be like, World War III? I grew up with talking about World War III. We watched movies about it the day after. These nuclear holocaust movies where everything got wiped out, that was the entertainment of the 1980s. So is it going to be World War III? I don't know. I, I don't, maybe. I don't know. That makes me think of, I think it was Einstein who said, I don't know what the weapons of World War III are going to be, but I do know what the weapons of World War IV are going to be, sticks and stones. Chew on that for a minute. At any rate, I know our lives here on this earth are nothing but a vapor. In regards to the future, my future, your future, the future of all who believe, we have a great hope. Please turn with me to Romans chapter, I'm sorry, Revelation. Revelation chapter 21. Verses 1 through 4. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying behold the tabernacle tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them 
and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. There shall be no more death. Man, no more death. No more sorrow. No more crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. This life's just passing away. But what is your future going to be? Meditate on that. Meditate on a future with no pain, no sorrow, no death, divorce, cancer, abuse, dementia, insomnia, broken relationships, the things that are just part and parcel of life here on this earth. None of that. None of it. It's gone. That gives me hope. I'm going to close with a quote by Steve Lawson from the book Foundations of Grace. Lawson said, Our view of God will affect everything. May we elevate him and our hearts to the highest place which belongs exclusively to him. To God alone be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. I'm looking for my bulletin. What's next? Our hymn of response.